This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. We're talking today about wildfires for the first little bit, um, which unfortunately are are really affecting most of us that live in California. Um, it's kind of a crazy time, kind of, you know, really historically crazy time when we're seeing the most uh, wildfires um, that we've seen pretty much in any pre-wildfire season period in the history of the state, um, because wildfire season typically starts right now and goes through mid-October. And so the fact that we've already had now the, the largest wildfire in California history before even wildfire season officially commences, I think speaks to the fact that what we're looking at is not an aberration. We're not looking at a bad year. We're not looking at, you know, a a short, weird period of time. Oh, there were some crazy lightning strikes and that's why things are so much worse. No, we're looking at the new normal. Um, And the governor has repeatedly said that if this doesn't prove that climate change is real, then I don't know what will. This is a very clear indication that climate change is happening and that this is the new normal, not just for California, not just for the West Coast, but frankly, for the the rest of the country. And so it really raises the, um, the question about policy. And it comes back to this class on the elections. How will different um, candidates for president and for Congress, for Senate, for, you know, for state legislatures address climate change. If you believe this is, and and wildfires, if you believe this is the new normal, then there are certain ways to approach it. If you believe this is an aberration, then your focus will be on just controlling it um, this year, (laughs) you know, and, and maybe as president, president Trump's solution is that we should be you know, sweeping out the underbrush, we should do better cleaning of our forest. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh, but um, that is that is definitely one perspective. And then the other perspective is, well, if this is the new normal, then we have to learn how to be more resilient. And in particular, um, what we know is that resiliency in all on all issues, and in particular on climate change, has a lot to do with race in the United States. So I want to talk about um, race and wildfires with regard in two ways. One, with regard to how communities of color are more greatly impacted by wildfires, just in terms of um, their ability to be resilient with regard to wildfires. And then two, I want to talk about a particular issue that's been around for since emancipation, slavery, um, that's now getting more attention because of the need for more firefighters, which is the fact that in California and frankly nationwide, um, we rely heavily, heavily on thousands of incarcerated workers who are paid pennies to, to fight our wildfires for us. So I want to talk a little bit about how that works, that system, and I'll do this as quickly as possible so we can get into the main topic of the day. So the part one is how do communities of color, how are communities of color impacted by wildfires? So this um, diagram and the research I'm gonna share right now comes from an article called The Unequal Vulnerability of Communities of Color to Wildfire. I like to name authors, so you can see them at the bottom, Davies, Haugo, Robertson, and Levin, 
published in 2018. These authors were curious after Katrina happened and they saw the devastation of black communities in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, so much more heavily impacted than white communities in New Orleans. Um, they began to look at, okay, what would that look like with regard to wildfire? What are the differential impacts for communities of color with regard to wildfire? They looked at 70,000 census tracts across the United States, um, and they looked at both the wildfire potential of a particular landscape, meaning just the geogra geography, like does a particular geography lend itself more likely to wildfire, but they also looked at the socioeconomic attributes of those particular census tracts and compared the two. Um, so they found that 29 million Americans live with significant potential for extreme wildfires. Again, this is coming at wildfires as the new normal, not as an aberration. So if this is the new normal, let's look at how many Americans are actually at risk of of evacuation, of wildfire. Um, so it's 29 million Americans who live with significant potential for extreme wildfires. Um, and, uh, and of those 29 million, a majority of those folks are actually white and socioeconomically secure. But within that 29 million, there are about 12 million socially vulnerable Americans for whom a wildfire event would be much more devastating. And um, it's true. It, I mean, part of the reason for those numbers is that white Americans do tend to live in fire prone areas. They live in, um, you know, forested areas. They live um, where there's a lot of brush, you know, they, they live in places where they have more garden and landscape that are, um, and, you know, vulnerable to fire. Um, but non-white communities are uh, less able to adapt to wildfire events for the reasons in this chart. So what they found in studying this, so the summary of what they found is that communities that are majority Black, Latino, or Native American are 50% more vulnerable to wildfire compared to other communities, and Native Americans in particular are six times more likely than other groups to live in the most vulnerable communities. So again, if the focus has been on reducing fire as policymakers, right, and, and who we vote for matters here, as policymakers, if the focus has been on reducing wildfires, then we don't care about resiliency of communities. We're just looking at, okay, there's fire, how do we reduce it? If we care about resiliency and differential, differential impacts on communities of color, then we actually have to not just reduce the risk but increase the resilience of communities of color if we believe this is the new normal and that communities of color are going to be the hardest hit. So looking at this diagram that I put before you, community vulnerability to wildfire really depends, hinges on two things. On the right-hand side, it's just the potential for a wildfire, potential hazard for a wildfire. On the top half, it's about the likelihood of a wildfire happening. Second half is the intensity of a wildfire. So both of those things need to be taken into account with regard to geography, just geography, hazard potential. But the left side of this circle is really about a community's adaptive capacity, whether they have the ability to respond to a wildfire that's likely or an intense wildfire. And all of these things you're looking at, socioeconomic status, language and education, housing and transportation, and age, 
all relate to whether a community can withstand a wildfire, escape a wildfire, um, you know, make it have another place to live after a wildfire. All of those things make a huge difference. So let's take, for example, just socioeconomic status. Um, income means a lot in terms of whether a family can afford tree trimming or brush removal or other fire mitigation strategies that could mean the difference between low severity underburn and severe wildfire. Education. Um, education and language improve access to relevant information in terms of navigating bureaucratic hurdles with recovery. You know, people with education and language access are more likely to be able to find out if there are government resources to access if you lose your home or where to go if you're being evacuated. Um, limited proficiency in English, they said, has been linked to great difficulty in recovering from disasters. And then housing quality and transportation obviously uh, is very, very correlated to wealth and income and race in this country especially because if you've got overcrowding that impedes on escape routes, um, building owners are less likely to pursue fire mitigation strategies on their properties with low-income renters, um, and renters are going to be less eligible for federal housing assistance than homeowners. So if they lose their apartment building because it burns to the ground, they're not going to have as much access to recovery funds to find a new place to live as a homeowner. Um, they're just low-income families with, you know, lesser quality housing are going to have a harder time um, just rebuilding or finding new housing after a fire. And then transportation. If you've been watching any of the news clips or reading any of the stories about people fleeing fires in California and Oregon, you know that vehicles make a big difference between life and death. Um, fuel costs, you know, I, I've been sharing with you the real struggles of 10 million restaurant workers across America who are disproportionately workers of color. Um, they, a lot of them are saying they don't have money for gas right now to get to the food bank, which means they also don't have money to put gas in the car if they're fleeing a wildfire. Um, so in all of these ways, focusing only on the right-hand side of the chart in terms of hazard potential, likelihood, and intensity and trying to simply reduce the risk of wildfire doesn't at all address what communities of color are facing, which is really about resiliency. How are we going to become more resilient if this is the new normal? And in particularly, how are we going to make sure that communities of color are resilient? So they map these 70,000 census tracts across the country in terms of the right-hand side of the, the, the chart and the left-hand side. And you can see here places in the, the census tracts with the highest hazard potential. And then the next chart, sadly, in terms of vulnerability, in terms of communities of color with the highest uh, vulnerability on all of the issues on the left-hand side of the chart, um, unfortunately, very much match in many ways the places with the highest wildfire potential. So you see a lot of the West and the Southeast as being places with high wildfire hazard potential in terms of the environment. Those also happen to be the places where you've got the highest levels of vulnerability, especially among communities of color, the West and the Southeast. And in particular, you can see in the Southwest, Arizona, New Mexico, native communities in particular, this is why this data that they are six times more vulnerable 
than everybody else with regard to wildfire. Um, it, it, that is why that's the case. So uh, in terms of solutions, because I also always like to talk about hope and solutions, um, again, this is all a matter of political will. I think we all know that, a lot, or many of us know that wildfires can be mitigated, can be reduced, um, but also communities can increase their resiliency if there is the political will. It is not science. It is not about, uh, in other words, it's not about a lack of information, a lack of science, or a lack of data to inform policy. It is about the political will to choose one policy over another. And um, if we believe, if we want to prioritize making communities of color and low-income communities more resilient to the new normal, then that means we have to tailor emergency planning and mitigation strategies to diverse populations, especially to socially vulnerable groups. We have to have language accessible emergency plans. Um, we have, and one example they gave is in 2014 when a massive fire emerged in Eastern Washington, language barriers prevented Latino farm workers from receiving evacuation notification from authorities, and the only Spanish-speaking radio station in the region never received the emergency information. People died. Um, and similarly, in Northern California and Santa Barbara, emergency departments and radio stations have struggled <laughs> to release timely and correct bilingual information during the 2017 wildfires in California correctly translating and effectively disseminating preparedness and evacuation materials is a prerequisite to having equitable mitigation for wildfire uh, vulnerability. So, you know, clearly these are, there are things that can be done with the right political will in place, which unfortunately doesn't exist right now, even in California, which is more blue than other places. We have not put into place the kinds of policies we need to make sure that the most vulnerable communities are resilient to the new normal. And I think that is the major shift that needs to occur, even among Democrats, it's not just Trump, there is still very much a focus on let's reduce the risk, rather than thinking about increasing our resilience as communities and particularly communities of color. So that's one part of how race and wildfires intersect. The other part of how race and wildfires intersect is this issue of incarcerated firefighters. And this is a picture from Friday when Governor Newsom signed in a, in a as you can see, burned out area, um, signed a bill that was called, um, uh, what was the number? I don't have the number. But basically it was a bill that allowed incarcerated firefighters to have their records expunged as an incentive to um, get them to fight fires, clearing the path for them to be eligible for firefighting jobs upon release. Now, that's, you know, on its face, a good thing. The insanity is that we, until Friday, were paying firefighters 11 cents, 13 cents, 20 cents an hour to fight fires and not allowing them to work as firefighters after they got out of prison or jail, neither. Um, and so this is a good thing, but it's ridiculous that this is the step that we're taking now, long overdue, uh, in fact, 150 years or more overdue, because really the ability to pay incarcerated people 
11 cents, 13 cents, 23 cents on the dollar comes from an exception to the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, except as a punishment for a crime. In other words, um, that slavery can and does still exist in the United States in the context of incarceration. So neither, this was the 13th Amendment, section one, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction, which is how people, you know, every state in the United States right now, there is not, there is not one that doesn't at this moment pay uh, incarcerated people um, less than a dollar an hour to do work, both for private sector companies and for the public. Um, and Colorado actually did just passed uh, became the first state in the country last year to pass a constitutional amendment changing their interpretation of the 13th Amendment, saying in Colorado, uh, you, can't have, um, uh, in, you can't have slavery even in the case of incarceration. However, that has not yet translated in Colorado to incarcerated people not being made to work and not being not given uh, cents on the dollar. So now lawyers are lawyers that I work with are suing the state to say, okay, if we've gotten rid of this in Colorado, this exception, now we actually have to pay people, and that has not yet come about. So because of this um, exception to the Thirteenth Amendment, we saw, you know, right after the um, right after, or you know, in eight, in eighteen twenty, this is Thomas Jefferson. Um, the reasoning as to why there was ongoing uh, slavery, even though supposedly, um, you know, there was a desire for emancipation. Thomas Jefferson said a general emancipation expatriation could be affected. So maybe we could consider emancipation and gradually and with due sacrifices, I think it might be, but as it is, we have the wolf by the ears and we can neither hold him nor safely let him go. Justice is one scale and self-preservation in the other. So this is Thomas Jefferson referring to black people as the wolf by the ears, that they cannot continue the practice of slavery, but we can't let people entirely go for our self-preservation, meaning white people. And therefore we have to figure out a way to keep people in check, which became convict leasing and um, incarcerated people working uh, while incarcerated which was the early version of what we have today, which is, of course, incarcerated people working for 10 cents, 11 cents, 12 cents on the dollar. So um, I actually have a book coming out in January that uh, kind of covers workers in some minimum wage sectors in different sectors, um, because my work started with ending the subminimum wage for tipped workers. And then over the last year, we've grown it to say all summon wages need to be ended, including those for incarcerated workers, um, covered some of the strike that happened in 2018 of incarcerated people fighting for minimum wage. Uh, and I just want to give you a, just a brief summary of two workers whom I interviewed, two people who I'm interviewed for the book, um, whose stories are public because they're in my book, so I can share. But um, Debbie is one. Debbie's here in California, but she had worked in a nonprofit in New York and got into trouble because her boss uh, engaged her in, a, in an accounting scandal in the nonprofit uh, and was arrested in upstate New York. 
Um, and so she, she was, it was a felony. She was um, serving time in an upstate New York prison. Um, and she said that she was paid 16 to 25 cents per hour. That was the range of jobs available in this New York upstate prison. But most were working for a quasi-private, quasi-public company called Corecraft, which is very similar to what most states have, including California. There are these quasi-public, quasi-private companies that employ incarcerated people doing what she said should have been unionized manufacturing jobs. Um, in her case, she did some of these jobs. At one point, she was doing outdoor work, you know, landscaping the prison and being paid something like 17 cents an hour and fell and broke her wrists while kind of clearing out tree brush. Um, and so her wrists were broken and they shackled her with the broken wrists at her wrists and dragged her um, to the point where her wrists were destroyed. Um, and uh, she ended up, you know, having to have plates inside her wrists. Um, and she talked a lot about both the working conditions and the wages. She said, when you call the DMV in New York State, this is most states, it's inmates answering the phone. Outdoor jobs, the one she experienced actually considered better, like firefighting and the job she had where she broke her wrists. Um, she had fought to get that outside clearance. She finally got it. She worked on the outside grounds, crew, landscaping, doing outdoor work. Um, and then, in, you know, if you were working and that happened to you, you should get something called workers' compensation. But uh, inside, you're paid 16 cents an hour. And uh, instead, she was handcuffed and shackled with her broken wrists and her bones moved out of place. Um, and they, you know, had to insert metal plates to keep her hands working. So she could no longer do outside work. And on the inside, uh, you, you get a lot less. She said, the money you earn in prison goes into your account. This applies to the firefighters as well. The money you earn, you don't see. It goes into an account and it's used to pay for personal hygiene at the prison commissary. So prisons don't provide adequate shampoo, toothpaste, toilet paper, tampons, sanitary napkins, or deodorant. And so people are forced to use those pennies that they get from firefighting or indoor jobs to pay for those things. Toilet paper. Toilet paper often runs out in prison and you have to use the money that you get from these penny jobs to pay for it. Uh, a second person interviewed in my book is Marshawn, uh, who was involved in an incident with his brother, ended up getting life uh, of incarcerated, you know, incarceration for life at the age of 18 for a crime he didn't commit. Uh, he was working for various jobs for 13 cents an hour. He said you could buy a, Roman, a ramen noodles packet for a dollar um, and, and, and a bar of soap costs a dollar. Toothpaste costs two dollars. Uh, you know, toilet paper, a dollar, and you would get 13 cents an hour. Um, and there's something in Illinois where he lived that allows you to reduce your sentence through good behavior but if you refuse the job you're given, you can be discounted. Your good behavior can be discounted. So essentially, you have to work whatever they assign you and at the wage that they assign you. And Marshawn said, our debt to society is paid by our freedom taken away. We weren't sentenced to hard labor or to work for free. We were sentenced to be separated from society. It would be useful and productive for society if they did pay people inside a fair minimum wage and allowed them to save. It would take pressure off our families who are working and have to pay their bills. And so we can make phone calls and have soap. We should be able to take responsibility for our lives and save for our eventual release. 
If they didn't have us do the work, they'd have to pay someone to do it and pay more. So I say all that to bring us to the people fighting our wildfires right now, um, because the argument as to how it's okay to continue this system in 2020 is that these people are getting training. It's okay to pay them less because they're getting training to get these jobs when they come out. But until Friday, let me be clear that the people being paid to fight our fires in California could not become firefighters when they came out until Friday. So that excuse goes away. Um, and we were concerned with the bill that passed on Friday that it would then be used as an excuse to continue paying people as little as they're paying them to fight these fires. So we need to keep fighting. Um, but on the issue of, oh, it's to train you, uh, Marshawn said, well, nobody else in America can get paid less than the minimum wage for getting trained. They're benefiting from us more than we're getting for our pay. It's not an excuse for them not to pay a fair minimum wage. People on the outside get skills, but they get paid while they're getting those skills. So 30% of our California forest fighters are incarcerated people. 4,000 inmates are currently fighting the blazes all across the state. They are getting $1.90 per day or 23 cents an hour. Um, and, you know, we heard from Amy Allison about Kamala Harris. There was a controversy several years back um, when her office as attorney general sought to keep people incarcerated so that they could continue to fight the wildfires because the truth is that our state would not be able to fight these wildfires without incarcerated people. Um, she then she changed her, she said that she didn't, she wasn't aware that her office had done that. She reversed course on that. Um, she has now come out, you know, in support of the Green New Deal. But it's important to note that A, that that happened, and B, that we can push elected officials and people who are running for office in this election on this issue, given that right now we would not be able to stem these wildfires without these incarcerated folks. Um, it's important to note that the people fighting our wildfires right now are sleeping in fire camps, barrack-style sleeping quarters sprinkled across the state, often in the middle of the forest. They're guarded by prison staff. Um, they're surrounded by chain-link fences. Uh, they get slightly better food than they do inside the prison, but it is incredibly dangerous. Um, so I do want to say, besides this bill that just passed on Friday, which is great, and yes, it's a good step, what we really truly need is for everybody to be paid a minimum wage for work performed and to end the exception to the 13th Amendment that allows for slavery in the case of incarceration. And again, piece of hope, there is a group that we work with called Dignity for Incarcerated Workers. They're part of our coalition. They are moving a resolution in the California state legislature to end the exception, to basically have a minimum wage for people who are incarcerated to get paid. If California did do that, it would be the first state in the country to do it. And we're hoping to get many more states to follow. So um, I'm going to stop there and hand it back to Professor Cohen. Um, I, yeah, thank you for that. That's um, obviously uh, enormously important at this, um, you know, what's, what's going on right outside of our door. Um, hugely significant. I um, would call your attention to a, a I'm going to put this in the chat here. Um, what is an old piece, an older piece of writing, but I think a really important essay by Mike Davis, who um, the patron saint of California, scholars of California, 
um, who wrote an essay in the, the, his book, The Ecology of Fear, which is about Los Angeles and the imagination of disaster, an essay called The Case for Letting Malibu Burn. Um, with, you know, there's some uh, sadistic glee that he takes in that. But at, basically the point is, is that Malibu is built in a chaparral that we know will burn every 20 years or so. The natives who um, lived along uh, the Southern California shore and what is today Malibu uh, engaged in indigenous um, uh, land management practices by burning the underbrush through uh, Malibu. But what, of course, is in Malibu now is not no longer indigenous villages, but that some of the wealthiest and most powerful people in California. And so when their homes burn down, as they do pretty much every 20 years, uh, the state of California usually ends up paying for rich people to rebuild their homes at the expense of um, the taxpayers of the state of California and in particular public housing and other issues like this. So Mike Davis makes the, the brazenly provocative argument that we should let Malibu burn down and not uh, build it back in the name of, uh, of social justice. Uh, it's, uh, it's an aggressive argument. This is a, you know, a short version of it, but uh, I you know, just add that to this question. Now, um, today what I want to do for the main subject then is, um, is to take, to, to be in a sense, very, very basic. To go back to basics, and uh, I'm, you know, we're not, I'm not really going to talk about the election per se so much today, as what I want to talk about is the basic question of race. What, what is it? And how do we talk about it? What kind of sense can we make about the question of race? Um, and so w- if I were to ask you, um, you know, the simple question of, you know, what, what is race? We get a, a range of questions. Anybody? Now, this is where I would ordinarily take all 300 of you and, and try and have this be a sort of call and response in a give and take scenario. But if I were to ask you to tell me what is race, what, you know, go ahead and enter it into the chat. Like, what would be some of the answers you might give me if I were to suggest that? Right. Okay. So, of course, the first one that comes up, you know, many of you are like, the, the, the quick draw on you uh, gives us that race is a social construct. Race is a social construct. Race is a social construct. Okay. Thank you. Yes, it, there it continues on and on. I've got 17 versions of race as a social construct. So you have all been successfully educated to understand uh, something, okay? But when I ask you, okay, so yes, race is a social construct. Yes, because um, this is the answer I always get. I know exactly what, uh, you know, I can read your minds, okay? Um, but what do we mean by that? What does that mean? You can give me this sort of knee-jerk response. Okay, race is a social construct. But what exactly does that mean? It is a a social construct of what, right? Now, this is a a kind of critical question in a number of of ways because by suggesting that race is a social construct, the first thing that becomes important about it is the understanding that race is not somehow real. It is not a biological or genetic reality. That if we understand that race is a social construct, it means that it is akin to something like Barbara Field's notion of ideology, that it is, in fact, the uh, the way in which we understand, map, and make sense of the world by dividing human beings into different categories and systems of classification, right? Based upon what? Right now, by and large, some of the comments are pretty clear on these things. Like the question is, like the questions are, you know, overwhelmingly. When we think about race, we think about right visual metaphors and visual references. Right, we're talking about most importantly color, skin color. Right now, of course, 
you know, the categories and the language we use around race are often attached, right? Black people, white people, brown people. Now, we don't use the other references so much anymore of red people and yellow people. Those have fallen out of the chosen nomenclature of the present. But black, white, and brown still remain really quite significant. And what you have in terms of racial, uh, the idea of race as a social construct is the basic understanding that race exists as we you know, experience it in a daily interaction, in the gap between the ways in which we read human bodies, we encounter, so if we look, I look out on the Zoom room here and I see the resplendent diversity of the student body in this class. I see all kinds of different skin colors. I see different hair textures. I see different eyes and nose and mouth shapes. And we read the physical bodies of each other. Were we to meet in the street? Were we to be in a classroom? We can read each other's bodies for various forms and appearances of social difference. Now, we, we are astonishingly good as human beings at reading faces and making markers of distinction between do I know this person? Do I not know this person? Is this person from around me? Is this person not? Is this person close to me? Is this person a stranger? And the way we go about that, right, is, again, the reading of the body as a text. And then once we've interpreted, looked at, and read, we then tell ourselves a story about what those differences mean. This person has black skin. This person has curly hair. This person has a heavy epiphantic fold over their eye. This person has very thin lips. This person, right? And we tell ourselves stories about what those differences mean. And it is in the gap between the visual and the discursive, between looking and telling a story about what these bodies mean is where, in a sense, race exists and race is made in terms of ideology, in terms of our daily experience and social interactivity. So when we say that race is a social construct, in a sense, that's what we're talking about. But what's, I think, particularly important here, right, is that, so in a sense, race is a social construction of what? Namely, right, the human body, right? The categories and classification mechanisms of the human body. But to say that race is a social construct does not mean that race isn't somehow real, that it doesn't actually exist in some way. Now, it does not, and again, I will assert this again and again, that race does not exist in a biological sense. That what we do, yes, there are genetic markers for things like skin color and eye shape and hair texture, but these genetic markers are astonishingly complex. There is no single gene that we can find that will tell you what your skin color was. There's no single gene that we can find that, will that is attached to hair color or eye color or things. It turns out that when we map the human genome, these categories of, of the, what we think of as the superficial appearances of human difference is in fact astonishingly complex and varied in its, um, uh, in its manifestations. So it, when we say that race exists as a social construct, that is not, you know, to say that it isn't real, that it doesn't have real material effects. And we can think about this in terms of, well, what else is a social construct? You know, what else is going on out there in terms of a social construct, right? If race exists as a social construct in the same way that the built environment is a social construct, right? Right? 
Suburbia is a social construct. Downtown urban areas are social constructs, right? The ways in which human beings interact with their environment. Language is a social construct. Time is a social construct. The hour, the minute, the week, the month. These are all social constructs, right? Law, the legal system is a social construct. Even science itself is a social construct. So to say that race is a social construct, right, is on the one hand to say that it is not grounded in biological reality, but secondly, it is to show that it actually is real, that it defines and structures the way in which we live our lives. So something like an imagined biological source can have a real impact, even though it is not actually grounded in biology. And we can say this, you know, so I give you, uh, for example, we can, we can think about the ways in which we go about organizing and classifying and categorizing race and think about this work of art by uh, the Korean-American artist Byron Kim called Synecdity. And it appears in multiple iterations around the world. Uh, you can see it in all kinds of different ways. And what this artist does is he sits down with sitters and friends and relatives and acquaintances and fellow artists, and he paints essentially their skin tone onto a single eight, a 10 by 8 inch uh, panel of common, uh, the size commonly used in portrait photography. And he paints their skin tone and then attaches it to a grid pattern on the wall um, that is based essentially on, that is alphabetized by the sitter's last name. And what you get is this mosaic looking uh, installation of multiple different racial categories and classifications, right? And in this, right, the word synecdity um, is a reference to a, a form of rhetoric, right? Those of you who are rhetoricians or English majors will recognize it. And it refers to a, part of, a, a figure of speech in which a part is meant to stand in for and represent the whole and vice versa. Now, what I think is particularly fascinating about this work of art is that it shows, in a sense, just the profound arbitrariness with which we go about defining racial categories, particularly racial categories based on skin color and skin color alone. If we were to take this uh, work of art and not, in fact, set it up uh, by alphabetize it, but by skin tone, for example, and we were to put the darkest ones in the upper left corner and the lightest ones in the lower right corner, what would we have? Well, we'd have this kind of continuum that then, what, we would be asked to go and figure out exactly where the division between white people and brown people are, and subsequently where the arbitrary division between where brown people are and black people are, and that somehow we would have to figure out where Asian folks fit into this, and these, it, it becomes an impossibility, right, to look at these shades on a wall presented as they are disrupts our understanding of race as a kind of clear, categorizable, definable set of characteristics and identities, particularly if we just abstract the notion of skin color, which is, of course, where the majority of our definitions are derived. So this is a work of art that helps us actually break down uh, the, the received understanding of what race is and how it is categorized and classified. Now, for the majority, what I, I want to do today in this lecture is think about and talk about the definitions of race, racism, racial formations, and racial projects that are defined by Michael Omi and Howard Winant in their really foundational work uh, called Racial Formations in the United States. 
Now, Professor Omi is a professor of, of uh, uh, ethnic studies in, uh, at UC Berkeley, and he will be joining us on Wednesday in particular to talk about his work and uh, his research into the United States Census. And so we'll spend a fair amount of time talking about the census um, uh, on Wednesday. But they give us this very explicit definition, race. Race is a concept which signifies and symbolizes social conflicts and interests by referring to different types of human bodies. So this pushes, on the one hand, the question of social uh, construct into uh, deeper and more rigorous territory. In the beginning, it, of course, insists that race is a concept which signifies and symbolizes, right? It is a kind of superficial act of representation. It is not some deep biological essence, right? Race is not in the blood. It is not, you know, on, you know, on the, 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 it is not a biological theory of history. It is a system of signifiers and symbols which reflect or signify social conflicts and interests by referring to different types of human bodies. So that there is, in a sense, both the myth and fiction of race being biologically real, but the socially constructed reality of it in that race is signifies social conflicts and interests through identifications of different human bodies. And I give you almost hilariously, if it weren't so dangerous and pernicious, a children's encyclopedia from the 1950s in the category of race. And what we get here is a version of the three races of mankind. Now, one of the the ways, I will talk about racial science in a moment, but one of the reasons why we know that racial science is, well, bullshit, is because racial scientists have never actually been able to figure out exactly how many races there are. So let me just say that, like, When I talk about racial science, I'm talking about a pseudoscience or the abuse of scientific uh, knowledge and methods to try and codify and solidify racial difference in nature. And so what you have here is an example of racial science, that there are three races, the mongoloid, the negroid, and the caucasoid, (laughs) right? And that the mongoloid race is some obscure um, Asian man who presumably lives in a pagoda somewhere. The negroid is a black man in chains who lives on the dirt in a grass hut, and the Caucasoid is a blonde-haired, blue-eyed white man in a, in a business suit who lives in a mid-century modernist mansion. Right? How much of this actually has anything to do with biology, and how much does it have to do with the sartorial, the setting, the built environment, all of those kinds of, right? The natural setting of Asians, or the, again, mongoloids, negroids, and caucasoids. And you're going to hear me say in this lecture, get used to it, a lot of really uncomfortable words. <laughs> now, there's one word, of course, I won't say. We'll get to it in a moment. But like this, this, you know, these are how we used to think about race and racial categories, right? But does this have anything to do with biology? No, it has everything to do with, in a certain sense, geography. But in, a, in another sense, more importantly, like what kind of clothes people are wearing. And this imagery is remarkably durable. I'll show you more, multiple examples of this. But again, when we think about what I want to show you is a more serious example, then let's turn to. And that is the first naturalization law ever written by the United States of America. The naturalization law is the law that says who gets to become a citizen. And so in 1790, it was still understood that, of course, if you're born in the United States and you're a propertied white man, you get to be a citizen of the United States. But, but who can come from overseas and become a citizen? So in 1790, the new nation wrote its first naturalization law in which um, it granted the rights of naturalization 
to immigrants who were, in the words of the law, quote, free white persons of good moral character. It explicitly refused citizenship to Native American Indians, to indentured servants, at least until their term of service was completed, to the enslaved, to free blacks, and to any Asian immigrants. This was explicitly denied. So as a nation, the United States defined at its origins citizenship as being rooted not just in a racial category, but in whiteness and whiteness exclusively. Now, if we take this quite literally, then we can see, right, that race is a concept that signifies and symbolizes, namely the difference between white skin, brown skin, white um, identity, and others, social conflicts and interests, who gets to be a citizen and who doesn't, by referring to different types of human bodies. So the naturalization law, at its origin, right, puts race at the center of American politics, at the center of American national identity, and it creates a situation in which um, every version of fighting over what it is to be an American, what the United States can and should be, is going to have to occur on the terrain of race, racism, and racial projects. Because what it means to be an American was defined at its origin as white. And this is, becomes the language, right? This is the, the version of American history that white nationalists seek to solidify and fix, right? The belief that this is a white nation, it should belong to white people, and, and, and anyone who is not white is simply, right, should not be, um, you know, have, you know, should not be able to rule, right? Should have no place in the society. This is essentially what birtherism is whether it was inflicted at Obama or at Kamala Harris, this belief that people of color are ineligible to be president of the United States because this is a white nation and that these people should never have been allowed to become citizens in the first place. That's what birtherism is. It's not about a birth certificate. It's never has, it never was about a birth certificate. It's about the assertion that this is a white nation and it must remain a white nation, according to those folks. And so, right, we can see then our recent politics as being shaped by this kind of identity, right? The sense in which, right, um, the, a vote for Barack Obama was not only, quote, good for black people, at least it was understood to be potentially so in 2008, but that it was, in fact, damaged the, the role of white people, that white people were being displaced. And what we have perennially in the United States is this conflict between white nationalism and the vision of a multiracial democracy. And the election of Barack Obama then created, you know, again, pushed forward the agenda that began with Lincoln and abolition and has through the civil rights movement and elsewhere that the United States can and should be a multiracial nation. And so when we can think then about the election of Donald Trump as being understood as a kind of white identity politics in which that whiteness now reasserts itself as the authoritative identity within the United States. It asserts itself, right, as symbolizing its new role in social conflicts and interests by referring to different kinds of human bodies. And so we can see very clearly the ways in which, right, this, the, the ways in which Omi and Wynant define what race is can help us understand how, what kind of role it plays in our politics. Now, what, of course, you all want to get at is, okay, what is racism then? If that's what race is, then what is racism? 
And this then becomes a little bit more complicated. And the issue, now I know that like your generation in particular, you know, the, all of you who snap to give me like, ah, race is a social construct. Okay, first of all, you're right. But it also then, you're a, a, a generation that I think can, you know, sniff out a racist at a thousand meters, right? You, like you can, you, you can go, Twitter is a bigot hunt, right? Like you're just looking for people to cancel because they've said, so how do you know that you know that you know that someone is or something they said or did is racist? How do you know this? Now, here's a definition. It is one, this is not the only, but I happen to like this one. Racism, a racial project can be defined as racist if and only if it creates or reproduces structures of dominance based on essentialist categories of race. Now, this is where, you know, and this is why, you know, I'm a professor in that I added the footnotes for this reading because in the footnotes, Omi and Wynett define essentialism. Essentialism here in the footnote is a belief in real, true human essences existing outside or impervious to social and historical context. The idea that like blackness is in the blood, that whiteness is an immutable, transfixed, transhistorical category and identity. I am here to tell you something. There is no such thing as any meaning that exists outside or impervious to social and historical context. All meaning is contextual. Human beings are meaning-making animals. We make meaning out of the universe. That's what language is. That's what culture is. That's what religion does. That's what science does. We are meaning-making creatures. That's what it is to be human. And the belief, the desire to see the meaning structures that we create as fixed, as transfixed, as natural, as universal, is on the one hand a deep desire we have, and I think also something that is extraordinarily dangerous for a whole host of reasons, many of which I will sort of return to. So let's take a really simple example, okay? Here's a tweet. I've been beating up on this poor guy since 2013, but here's a tweet, okay? I'm not going to give you his name, but anyways. Am I racist, he asks conveniently, because that is our question too. Are you racist, whoever you are? Am I racist if I feel uncomfortable about a guy with a turban on my plane because this isn't okay with me? Now, based on the definition here, who wants to take a stab at the question of whether or not this guy is racist? Based on the definition, raise your hand and I will ask to, and I will click to unmute you so I do not have to embarrass myself mutilating your name and you don't end up offended because the white male professor can't pronounce your beautiful name. Anybody want to take a stab at this one? Is this racist? Yeah, okay. Uh, who's, I got somebody. Okay, uh, Chandler. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, although he's although he's wrong um, about it. Well, how is he wrong? Well, um, a turban is doesn't make anyone more dangerous or uh, you know any more likely to do harm than anything else. But he's not racist because the person could be. He doesn't even state the race. The person could be any race and have a turban on. Okay, that's one version. Um, Adrian. Um, I don't think it's racist as much as it's ignorant. 
I think it, I think he's exposing his own insecurity and his own like paranoia when he says that. Uh, am I racist? Obviously, it's not right, but I mean, it's more like a child, like a five-year-old. Okay, that that works. Um, uh, Emma, what do you think? Hi, um, I don't think it's technically racist because I do think that the like the turban association with like being violent or like being a terrorist, I think is what he's implying is kind of essentialist, but I don't think that it reproduces structures of dominance to be afraid because it's not an action. So like going on this definition of racism, it only fits one of those categories. Okay. So those are all good options. Now I'm going to sort of take over here and, and like my, the argument that I'm going to make to you is that this is, and obviously so racist. And here's why. First of all, it begins with this question, right? It's an, on the one hand, it is an expression of discomfort. Now, white people, as we know, tend to associate discomfort with being unsafe, right? So if you're uncomfortable, you are, white people consider themselves unsafe, which is why white people, when they get into conversations about race, they feel uncomfortable, they start to feel unsafe. Okay, so we're going to, just going to let white people breathe on that one. But This guy wants to know, okay, am I racist if I feel uncomfortable about a guy with a turban on my plane? Now, first of all, you all correctly pointed out one thing. That is that people wearing turbans, right, usually come from uh, the the sick minority, right? These are uh, racially, uh, you know, this is a, a, a racial minority, but is a religious community, most importantly, right, of South Asian um, uh Hindus in particular, right? And what the association here is, what is wrong is that he's associating a guy with a turban, a Sikh, with someone who is Muslim, who he associates being a terrorist. So there, you know, you don't get any points for being a smart racist or being a stupid one. In fact, nothing really, you know, it, it doesn't much matter <laughs> either, either way. But in this sense, there is an essentialist category that is being established here, which is to say that Muslims on airplanes are terrorists. And that makes me uncomfortable. Beyond that, though, the structure of dominance is asserted in the last clause where he says, this isn't okay with me. Now, if he was simply saying, am I a racist if I feel uncomfortable about a guy with a turban on my plane, then not only are you ignorant, but you probably are prejudiced. You're probably bigoted, but it doesn't necessarily cross the line into being racist until you say, and I would keep all of these people off of airplanes. Do you see the difference? So there is an assertion of an essentialist category of race that is attached to his right to be from being uncomfortable to assert that these people should not be allowed on airplanes. And this, of course, then gets responded to by someone else. Ugh, I know what you mean. I get really uncomfortable whenever I see a white man walk into a movie theater or elementary school. Now, this is to flip the script without then necessarily going in on the racist tip by saying, and therefore we should keep all white people out of movie theaters and all white people are murderous mass shooting terrorists, right? It doesn't make that leap. It turns the racial essentialism into a joke without crossing the line to become racist on its own. Now, large, nat- large uh, matter, uh, subject, uh, excuse me, large sections of this kind of conversation then rely on what you all have come to understand pretty explicitly, which is that when we look for race, the story we tell ourselves is by and large what's understood as a stereotype. 
Now, y'all can find a stereotype in a haystack. You got laser beam eyes for this. The real issue is what cultural and political work does the stereotype do? Why do we rely on stereotypes so aggressively? Now, the issue here of the stereotype is it comes out of the language of the printing press. That the stereotype was the text that was placed on an old-fashioned mechanical printing press, and a piece of paper would be placed onto the stereotype, and you would turn the machine, and it would go cliché, 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 cliché. It is an onomatopoeia. So stereotypes then become the stories we tell ourselves about what racial difference me is and means. So let me just give you some examples, right? And, you know, so stereotypes that black men are inherently violent and cannot contain their sexuality, that Asians are analytic, hardworking, but lack individuality. Uh, that Mexican, excuse me, that Native Americans are savages, beasts of the wilderness, ripe for the cutting down. Uh, Mexicans are physically built for uh, agricultural labor. That Jews are obsessed with money and crave power. And that white men are naturally smarter and more rational and thereby justified in ruling the world. No, you, you, don't, you don't like those? Okay, I've got others, I've got others. Let's try these others, okay? Um, white people can neither dance nor dunk basketballs. Uh, black men are good at sports and have large penises. Um, Native Americans have a spiritual connection to nature. Jews are naturally smarter and all make great scientists and philosophers. Uh, and that Asians are good at math and will someday become our economic overlords. What, what's the difference? We have good stereotypes and, and bad stereotypes, right? Is the opposite of a bad stereotype or a negative stereotype a good stereotype? Can we just replace the bad stereotypes with good ones? No. Clearly not, right? In the end, all stereotypes, no matter how positive or negative, are inherently dehumanizing. The power of the stereotype is not grounded in whether or not it's true or false, or whether it is a positive or negative valence attached to it, but it is about the work of race and representation. The opposite of a negative stereotype is not a positive one. The opposite of the stereotype is the myriad diversity of humankind and the recognition that all of us have the full and complete potential of humankind itself. The opposite of the stereotype is the self-possessed individual. The recognition that each and every one of us is entitled to the rights and responsibilities of individualism. And this is a power that in the United States is traditionally only ascribed to white people and indeed to white men. We understand historically, right, and you take me, for example, right, as a white man, I am just professor, right? Whereas others, you have black professors, black women professors, queer black women professors, right? Every time you add another minoritized concept, right, you get farther and farther away from what the philosopher Sylvia Winter describes as the overrepresentation of man. That white masculinity is the unmarked subject, that I exist without hyphen, without as the whole and every deviation of minoritization subsequent to my wholeness is understood as lesser forms of humanity, lesser forms of individuality, people who are in fact trapped, as we imagine it, by their racial identities. And these kinds of conversations about racial authenticity, racial identity, right, persist throughout, 
right? We spent the 2000, you know, the, the, the Obama administration questioning, you know, is he black enough? What kind of black is he? Is he black enough? These kinds of questions, right? Um, and that persist, right? What, I mean, what happens if you're an Asian American student at Cal who's not into math and STEM? Are you somehow outside of the stereotype? Are you not... You know, um, you know, are you not truly Asian, right? These kinds of conversations are deeply, deeply unhelpful. And they commit to this idea that, right, we all are uh, the subject of these kinds of racial representations. So stereotyping is, on the one hand, you know, hard to avoid because these are the stories that keep getting repeated, but it is one of those things that we necessarily have to fight back against cognitively, intellectually, because every time you want to resort to a stereotype, you see someone resorting to a stereotype. It's not enough to just merely say, Hey, that's a stereotype. Stereotypes are bad. You need, and and yeah, that's fine. Do that. But what's really at stake is what is the stereotype doing? What cultural work does it do? Why is this stereotype so um, pervasive, so repetitive, so significant, right? Now, in this, then we come to the question, I think, which really is where Omi and Weinert's key uh, innovation comes, which is in the definition of the racial formation or racial project. Now, we define, in their sense, the racial formation as the socio-historical process by which racial categories are created, inhabited, transformed, and destroyed. Now, let me repeat that. We define racial formations as the socio-historical process by which racial categories are created, inhabited, transformed, and destroyed. Now, this, I think, is incredibly useful, particularly those four terms, created, inhabited, transformed, and destroyed. The idea that racial categories are created is something that flies in the face of its belief in biological foundationalism, right? Well, God created, right, racial categories, right? Uh, these are biologically determined, right? But the language and our understanding of racial categories are, in fact, you know, repeatedly, consistently being created. New racial identities are created all the time. Racial categories are constantly being transformed, reworked, reimagined. Roman racial nomenclature is always shifting under our feet. And indeed, racial categories are constantly being destroyed. You're not going to make it very far in politics if you refer to Asian Americans as mongoloids or as black people as negroids. Those old racial science terms have disappeared. Racial categories are destroyed with rather, you know, intense regularity, right? We'll talk about some of these others, but what I want to also underscore here is that only one of the four categories established by Omi and Wynett has anything to do with stasis. What is, and that is the term inhabited. What does it mean to inhabit a black racial identity, to inhabit uh, a Hispanic racial identity, to inhabit a Korean American racial identity. And that is understood as existing in a moment, right, for a certain group of people who live in the flesh of what is then defined from the outside as a racial category. So what you're talking about here is a historical process that is constantly in flux, that is always moving and shifting in time. And so then it gives us their subsequent definition of a racial project. And this is what I want to spend the rest of the time talking about. A racial project is simultaneously an interpretation, representation, or explanation of racial dynamics and an effort to reorganize and redistribute resources along particular racial lines. 
Now, this, I think we want can use as, as a rigorous definition of what the rest of us probably tend to think of as racial politics, right? A racial politics or a racial project, right, is an interpretation. What is race? What does it mean? How do we understand it? How does it go about representing differences of human bodies and human interests? And it is attached to a particular effort to reorganize and redistribute these along specific racial lines. Now, we know that racial categories are constantly changing and rewriting, reinscribing racial nomenclature has been a racial project, particularly for minoritized groups for a very long time. And we can see this in the United States Census, which is itself born out of the 1790 Naturalization Act and the United States Constitution, a racial project. Now we will talk about this um, going forward, but what I do want you all, and, and maybe one of, hopefully one of the GSIs can just drop this in the chat, um, racebox.org is a website I want you all to go look at in which basically a former student of mine, UC Berkeley grad, Joshua Begley, uh, who's he's a, 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 an artist, uh, currently lives in New York and we miss him, um, but he wrote, um, made this amazing website, which basically just cuts out uh, the race box of every United States census from 1790 to the present. And you can see the ways in which racial nomenclature is constantly evolving right, in which the way in which we go about defining who is what kind of person, right, is constantly shifting. And we know this, right, from just basic, uh, our, our basic day-to-day -day interactions and our most recent history. We can think of the questions of what's in a name, right, but the difference between Negro, Black with a small b, Black with a capital B, or African American. These categories, right, are themselves on the one hand quite precise, but they're also quite, uh, you know, they have fuzzy boundaries. So someone like Muhammad Ali um, dropped the idea, so that the term Negro in this sense was the common nomenclature for Black Americans, really from, uh, you know, from going very far back. It just simply is Spanish for Black. It goes way, very far back. But in the Jim Crow era, the time of W.E.B. Du Bois and others, the fight was over whether you capitalize the N in Negro or not. Muhammad Ali asserted, right, that he was not, in fact, a Negro, but that he was Black. And that this in part, the era of the 1960s, begets a new consciousness in African-Americans in which the, the language of Negro was dropped in favor of a new diasporic identity of Black. Now, the four men, and they are, uh, you know, all men you see here, are in fact Black, right? Or identify as Black, right? Muhammad Ali, Barack Obama, Nelson Mandela, Bob Marley. They all then identify as Black. Now, only two of these are, of course, African-American. African-American is a specific subset within blackness. If black people in Africa, in Peru, in Brazil, in Guatemala, in Mexico, and in the United States, and in Europe, and everywhere in the world, then are part of the African diaspora and can claim a black identity, only those black people living in right, uh, North, North America, identified by the hyphenated term African-American. In Barack Obama's case, that is quite literal, right? His father was African, his mother uh, was white, uh, and he then uh, is the perfect version of, though he is mixed race and married to Robinson, identifies as black and was identified as black, uh, that was a choice, right? 
And I do think that it's quite possible that, you know, in, in many years time, we will see Barack Obama, not necessarily, not, mere, not just as the first black president, but as the first mixed race president. Of course, Nelson Mandela here is black, but he is not African-American. He is simply African, right? And so these identities carry multiple valences that bleed out into uh, expanding ca- uh, categories. Now, of course, there is the one piece of racial nomenclature that I will not uh, utter, um, because why would I want to? Um, the use of the N-word can only by white people, and indeed anyone who is not black. And we just say this quite explicitly in the name of intra-racial solidarity, that I have anyone who is not descendant of African slaves in the New World gets to use the N-word. That includes Latinx people. You, unless you're claiming Afro-Latino identity, you do not get to use that word. Now, black folks get to do what they want. I'm not here to tell black people whether they should use this word or not. That is not my place. I am definitely here to tell you that white people do not get this word and it is bit, get to use this word. And it has been that way for the better part of a century or more. And this is, you know, in the histories of stupid, asinine CNN chirons, boy, this one takes the cake. N-word versus cracker, which is worse? I don't know. I'm going to go with the one that you're not saying, right? (laughs) Cracker is like, you know, I mean, and so you also got, I mean, last year, the utterly hilarious uh, moment in which um, um, Chris Cuomo was confronted by somebody who called him a Fredo, which was just like a laser beam insult for Chris Cuomo. Um, if you've seen The Godfather, you know what I'm talking about. He is the lesser son of greater men. Uh, and to be called a Fredo, just like, boom, right? Like, took him out to the point where Chris Cuomo was like, Fredo is the N-word for Italian-Americans. No, it's not. There is no equivalent <laughs> to the N-word. In any other languages, like none, there's just, it doesn't exist, right? Now, I would offer other versions of this, which is to say that like Asian American is a recent piece of nomenclature, in fact, invented on the Berkeley campus in the 1960s. Asian Americans traditionally went by a whole host of names that are no longer viable, Initially, the Asian Americans, Chinese Americans in particular, when they appeared in California and New York, were referred to as the Celestials. They eventually went on to become the Orientals. And then as Asian immigration moved and evolved, they became the Yellow Race, or they simply became all Chinese, whether they were Japanese, Korean, um, Filipino, Vietnamese, Malayan, Southeast Asian, etc., And so in the 1960s, groups of Asian American students at the University of California at Berkeley led here, um, in particular by Richard Aoki, who was actually a member of the Black Panther Party, um, was was a student at Berkeley High, graduated from UC Berkeley, and was helped found the Asian American Political Alliance, which pushed in the late 1960s a reorientation of the nomenclature around Asian Americans. Now, we understand that that language of Asian American is pretty vague, right? It's this, I mean, you're you're talking billions of people under a single terminology, and that is highly inadequate, right? Because the life experiences of Chinese Americans, of Japanese Americans, of Korean Americans, of South, of South Asian Americans and others is very different. And yet, because, uh, you know, on the one hand, this is an improvement over referring to all Asians as Chinese or as Orientals, but it remains deeply problematic. And indeed, there is no version of racial nomenclature that is not deeply problematic. 
Um, indeed, recent years, we've seen attempts to then create racial categories that are inclusive of non-white people. And so we get language around POC or people of color so that we can understand that, that, that is a way of framing whiteness as the kind of racial dominant in the United States and the subordinate status that all non-white people are subjected to by lumping them together as people of color. Now, recently, uh, and indeed this phrase, people of color, dates back centuries. The Oxford English Dictionary suggests that the first version of this phrase appeared in the late, uh, in 1796. Um, so it goes way back um, but it is, of course, taken on new valence to mean essentially non-white people or, you know, in a sense, people who are discriminated against, hyphenated Americans, as they might have called them in the early 20th century. Recently, BIPOC or BIPOC or what the various new um, um, acronyms have emerged to name black and indigenous people of color so that black and indigenous people are called to the front at, because of the ways in which whiteness um, or in this case, non-white, the non-whiteness of black and indigenous people is indeed the very structure of settler colonialism and a slave society upon which this nation was founded, and that, that subsequent racial groups have either found their way into or, um, you know, the dyad, the black-white indigenous experience, right? So there's a sense of putting black and indigenous experiences at the front and still providing an inclusive category of non-white people. This language is sticky. It is being pushed and it is evolving in the present moment. And you have seen the birth and spread of this nomenclature in just the past six months, right? Um, in the same time period, the New York Times editorial now officially capitalizes B in black. Now, the Washington Post then went and threw down and said, well, we're going to capitalize the W in white. Now, there are reasons for this, um, but what you see now, I'm, I'm kind of with the one and not the other. I, I do think that black capital B is a coherent cultural and racial identity in the United States, whereas white is not. Um, we can talk in a lot of different terms around this and, and what that means. Um, but I think in a, in a very broad sense, like the point is to say that you all have seen racial categories evolve in your own lifetime. Now, this is particularly important in part because. Um, for a whole host of reasons, not the least of which, and so Omi and Wynant then give us this clear sense that they, they say very explicitly, and this is probably, you know, I, I, depending on who's watching, and, and again, remember, don't feed the trolls, don't read the comments. Um, depending on who's watching, um, you know, uh, this may be the most controversial part here, which Omi and Wynant insist there is nothing inherently white about racism. All racism, is all, uh, is all racism the same, or is there a distinction between white and non-white versions of racism? We have little patience with the argument that racism is solely a white problem or even a white disease. The idea that non-white people cannot act in a racist manner since they do not possess power is another variant of this formulation. Now, their understanding here, right, is to say that, indeed, people of color can often be quite racist towards each other, right? It's not, I mean, many of you can probably see the, way, the, way, the role of anti-blackness in Asian communities, the role of anti-immigrant uh, sensibilities in black communities, uh, the ways in which the non-white racial interactions, right, the intra-race interactions are often structured and shaped by racism in these ways. And which is to say then in the sense that no one really gets off the hook. No one gets to just say that they are automatically by definition of their identity, not or anti-racist 
we are all responsible for being or in the better of not being racist or indeed embracing anti-racism. Now, the more controversial question is whether or not people of color can be racist towards white people. And this then I think Omi and Winant do create space for and the belief that white people are inherently evil, that white people are the descendants of the devil. These kinds of things can be, I think in one sense, versions of what it would look like or what it does look like to be racist towards white people. The question though, however, they quickly hasten to add, is not whether or not this group or that group or this writer or that writer is being racist towards white people. The real question is what relative power does anti-white racism have? How threatening is this? How potentially hegemonic or totalizing or dominating is this extraordinarily small um, percentage of racial discourse? And so they say, having said this, we still do not consider that all racism is the same because of the crucial importance we place in situating various racisms within the dominant hegemonic discourse about race. So what this is to say then, right, um, and well, let me back up for a sense. One of the things they also insist on is that, that, that is to say that, that while white structures like systemic racism is a version of white supremacy, I think part of what this class is about, I think Professor Jaya Raman will back me on this, is to say that no one is truly fully without power, right? No one is utterly bereft of power. Everyone has some version of power, right? If you've had a black president, you have a black man on the United States Supreme Court. There are black social movements. Black Lives Matter is building power. There are black elected representatives just to stick to African-Americans. It's impossible to really argue that black people don't have any power at all, right? And so this sense of powerlessness is what obviates or you know, allows you to escape the accusations of being racist is, I think, in a sense, a dangerous idea that, because it, it has to embrace the idea that we are, in fact, all powerless. Now, what I think is more important, however, is this understanding that white racism is the dominant racial project. And this is indeed what Omi and Wynant refer, refer to as a racial dictatorship or what I simply will refer to as white supremacy. This is a white supremacist nation. It has been from its origins. White supremacy was written into the Constitution. And Omi and Wynath then argue that it is important, therefore, to recognize that in many respects, racial dictatorship is the norm against which all U.S. politics must be measured. The dictatorship elaborated, articulated, and drove racial divisions not only through institutions, but also through psyches. Extending up to our own time, the racial obsessions of the conquest and slavery periods. Now, they give three attributes to racial dictatorship. First, they define American identity as white, and I've already been over that. Secondly, racial dictatorship organized the color line, rendering it the fundamental division in U.S. society. This is, right, the gap between, that, that says, right, when white people, uh, hypodescent, this is one of the new words I learned in reading uh, Clara Rodriguez's uh, really significant essay on contestation and classifications of Hispanic, Latino, um, uh, Latinx identity in the United States sentence, uh, census, the word hypodescent, or the one-drop rule, which says that features or prioritizes racial purity, that if you, your great, 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 great grandmother was black, then you forever will be identified as black no matter what you look like. This is the one drop rule, right? And which is why, of course, American racial science and racial politics um, policed 
racial boundaries around sexuality so ferociously. And third, they write, racial dictatorship consolidated the oppositional racial consciousness, which is to say the white supremacist or racial dictatorship uh, that, that is embodied in, say, the transatlantic slave trade took myriad language groups, tribal affiliations, and African uh, national identities and dissolved them all down into what we today just simply recognize as black or African, right? This is why, you know, um, you know the Ashila the, um, the Mbembe piece was published on a website called Africa is a Country, right? Which is, a, you know, a kind of a parody or a kind of a pushing back against the ways in which, you know, most white people really can't name any nations in Africa. They just think of Africa as one contiguous, undifferentiated mass. That's where the black people are, right? Um, the same is true with Indians or natives. These are people with immense linguistic uh, diversity, with a broad range of uh, cultural and tribal identities that as settler colonialism washed over uh, North America, all native peoples and their myriad diversity simply get dissolved down into the identity of Indian, right? And so racial dictatorship then, whereas Americans, white Americans are obsessed with the micro differentiations between Scottish, Irish, Welsh, um, and English between a German and Belgian and Flemish um, and Italian and, um, uh, you know, Bulgarian and Hungarian and Spanish and Portuguese and so on and so on, right? Those distinctions matter, whereas the distinctions between ethnic uh, identities within blackness or tribal affiliations within indigeneity uh, no longer are significant. So let's just, you know... Um, I'm going to go till 1140, so it will take six minutes. Obviously, I have entirely too much material here. To think about what accounts as examples of racial projects, right? That we can think of as versions of racial projects. I'm going to talk briefly about a few here, and then we'll turn to questions, and you can forward your own. One example, a big idea of a racial project, would be what we think of as the project of discovery and settler colonialism. This is Theodore Debris, a Dutch engraver's depiction of Columbus's arrival in the New World. Now, this was drawn uh, in 1592, exactly a century after Columbus's arrival in the New World. And what you see here is a, a very highly ideological depiction of a technologically benighted, metal-clad, and heavily armed um, invasion of Castilians arriving in a direct uh, encounter with the native Arawaks of the Caribbean islands. Now we see here, right, Columbus here dressed to the nines, his men behind him wearing armor and carrying weapons. They erect a cross on the ground behind them and the three uh, uh, ships in the back, the Nina, the Pinta and the Santa Maria are the examples of the most sophisticated works of technology in their time. And not just the deep water sailing vessels that brought Columbus to the New World. No, the most valuable and most high-tech examples of pieces that were on those ships were the astrolabes and maps that allowed Columbus to navigate the Western Sea to eventually arrive in what would, would be the Caribbean and then crash land uh, on the island of San Domingue or what is today modern Haiti. Columbus, when he arrives, and I would also note that the, there are the native peoples here who arrive and bring them gifts, but then there are others in the back who, in a fit of rational self-interest, decide that they're going to run the hell away. Now, Columbus, when he arrives in the New World, immediately begins to try and assess exactly who and what these people are. 
And these are quotes, merely barely legible quotes from Columbus's journals, uh, original logs, in which he says, no sooner had we conducted the formalities of taking possession of the island, the people began to come to the beach, all as naked as their mothers bore them. He continues, uh, they are well-built people with handsome bodies and very fine faces, although their appearance is marred somewhat by very broad heads and foreheads, more so than I've ever seen in any other race. Their eyes are large and very pretty. Their skin is the color of Canary Islanders or of sunburned peasants. Not at all black, as would be expected, because we were on an east-west line with Herrero in the Canaries. He then goes on to describe them. Many of the natives paint their faces, others paint their whole bodies, some only the eyes or nose. Some are painted black, some white, some red, others of different colors. So we're already in the process where Columbus is looking at these bodies and trying to determine what manner of human are they. And the reason why he's doing this is because he's lost. He's lost. He has no idea where he is, right? He's lost. He actually thinks he's in Japan. But of course, he knows he's not in Japan because he knows what Japanese people are supposed to look like. And these people do not look Japanese. He knows that he's somewhere else, but he's going to tell the queen of Spain that he's halfway to India because that's who's paying for his trips. Because below, that reference to understanding these people as looking like sunburned peasants will double down. He says, your highness will see this for yourselves when I bring you the seven that I have taken. So like, let's be clear, as soon as Columbus arrives in the new world, he started kidnapping people for purposes of a transatlantic slave system. That after they learn our language, I shall return them unless your highness orders the entire population to be taken to Castile or held captive here. So if the king wants me to enslave them all, I'll bring them back to Spain or I'll enslave them right here, no problem. As he says, with 50 men, you could subjugate everyone and make them do whatever you wished. His immediate assumption was that these people would be enslaved and subjected to European authority because they were, in his immediate understanding, inferior peoples. Naked and beautiful, yes. Kindly and generous, yes. But in the end, inferior, worthy only as servants. And this then begets, in the wake of the massive ecological catastrophe in the New World, the first major debate that breaks out in the New World around what to do with the native peoples. It is led initially Bartholomé de las Casas here, who immigrated to Española, became the first ordained priest in the New World, would go on to become the Archbishop of Chiapas, who writes a book called The Devastation of the Indies, A Brief Account, in which he argues that the savage wars of the Spanish against the indigenous people is an unjust war. That these people are indeed human, that they have souls, and that they must be, in fact, converted to Christianity. Now, this begets the first major debate in Western history over what we commonly now today think of as the question of race. And Las Casas was called back to Valladolid, the seat of the Spanish crown, to debate with a bishop, another religious figure by the name of Genus de Sepulveda. Sepulveda argued that, in fact, the natives were not human, that they were beasts who were justly made war upon, who should be cut down and conquered. And he writes, quote, In wisdom, skill, virtue, and humanity, these people are as inferior to the Spanish as children are to adults and women are to men. This is a good example of what we will go on to describe in some detail as intersectionality, that oppressions line up on top of one another. 
There is as great a difference between them as there is between savagery and forbearance, between violence and moderation, almost, I am inclined to say, as between monkeys and men. The Indians are to be placed under the authority of civilized virtuous princes or nations so that they may learn from the might, wisdom, and law of their conquerors to practice better morals, worthier customs, and more civilized forms of life. Now this then begets then a Spanish colonial system in which, right, here we see one of the first world maps, right, in which Europe is at the top, in which Africa and South America sit at the bottom, but they are connected across the Atlantic Ocean, in which the cartographers of European colonialism create not just a racial schema, but a geographic schema through not just the exportation of Spanish colonialists to the New World, but Africans in huge numbers. Now, by 1700, some 200,000 Spanish had moved to the New World, and some 60 to 80 million natives had died out out of a total of an estimated 145 million natives indigenous to the New World when Columbus arrived. What was produced in Spanish colonial America was a system in which the Spanish had to intermarry, by and large, with the, the social hierarchies of the tribes and nations that they conquered, in particular, right, the Inca Empire of the, uh, the Andes and the Aztec Empires of Central Mexico, the two most powerful indigenous nations uh, of the, um, the, of the, uh, 17, the 15th, 16th centuries, or medieval America, I should say. This then created a system of racial codification and identification in colonial Latin America that is bound in and through intermarriage. And what you get then is a system of the casta system that admixtures of Indian, European, and indeed African peoples that were the result of the Colombian exchange. And you get this racial hierarchy and systems of classification and categorization. So an Espanol, meaning someone from Spain, can marry an Indian, and you get a mestizo. If a mestizo marries someone from Spain, you get a castizo. If a castizo marries a white person from, from an Española, you get an Español. Wait, so you can become white again? This is amazing, right? And note that the, the racial identity here of these people and the elite status as, as, as communicated in their clothing. But if an Español marries a mora, a negra, or a black person, then you have a mulatto. And this goes on and on and on in what are a series of casta paintings produced across the 19th, excuse me, the 18th century uh, in Mexico and in colonial Latin America. The system of mestizaje or admixture, but one of the things you see is while mixture is acceptable, in fact, kind of encouraged in all of these, you know, Morosco, Chino, Lobo, Zambo, all of these different racial identities and categories, none of which we cling to anymore, what you do see as people get browner and blacker in this Costa painting, they get poorer, they get more indigent, their finery in terms of clothes become rags. And a racial hierarchy or a caste system emerges quite quickly. And in this legacy, we find the discomfort around the language of what it is to be Hispanic, Latino, or Latinx in the United States. Now, this is not a direct correlative. The caste system of colonial Latin America is not what our census is based upon. Our census is based upon the complexity of racial relations in Latin America that then has racial dictatorship imposed upon it. 
And so you have multiple racial categories and ways of which Latinx people or Hispanic or Latino or Chicano people identify themselves. And throughout American history, these identities change. Chicano, Chicana, is a term that really emerged in the 1960s out of the brown power movements, out of the Chicano blowout movements, out of the rise of Chicano rights organizations in Los Angeles in the late 1960s. The Chicano was meant to replace Mexican or Mexican-American in the American lexicon. But by the 1970s, in many respects, as a counter-assault against the rise of Chicano, the Nixon administration establishes Hispanic as the new racial category or classification that they um, seek to create as a pan-ethnic or multi-ethnic racial category, identifying people as Spanish speakers. So Hispanic is designed to identify people who are Spanish speakers or who come predominantly from Spanish-speaking countries. Subsequent to that, the reaction to Hispanic, which of course is imperfect, it leaves out Brazilians, the second largest country in North America, who speak Portuguese. Well, they're not from, are they Latino, right? Are, Are the Brazilians Latino? But they are not Hispanic. Latino then emerges later, in the 19, later in the 70s or 80s, as people descendant from those in Latin America, those colonized by the Spanish and Portuguese by Iberians in previous eras, that is in that sense more inclusive. Now, subsequent to that, people have attempted to challenge the category of Latino, Latina, because it is in some senses understood as a gendered term and sought to replace that with Latinx which is a term that sort of caught fire. It seems there's a counter um, resistance to it that is increasingly kind of growing to the point where, um, you know, this, this identity is very much in flux. And the article that you read shows us the ways in which Right, American racial nomenclature, as imposed upon the multi-ethnic, multi-racial identities of Hispanics and Latinos, simply does not function. So that you have 50% of people who identify as Hispanic also claiming to be racially white, and that 50, 40% of people who identify as Hispanic then subsequently go on to say that they belong to some other race, which they then ascribe as either Mexican, Cuban, Puerto Rican, etc., so these are the myriad ways in which the American, the racial project, right, of Latin America is quite different than the racial project of the one drop rule that we here have in the United States. But when the U.S. Census needs to figure out who's Hispanic, Latino, et cetera, our racial nomenclature breaks down. It seems incapable of figuring out who these folks are or aren't. Now this, you know, I, I think goes on and on. I have a lot more to say about all of these things. I mean, I think about racial projects, but let's just... Um, let me just turn this over to questions, uh, and uh, and I and I, what I'm going to do again is I'll ask you to raise your hand, and I, if I will then you know, ask you by clicking on you to unmute yourself. Although, should I? I mean, does one of the GSIs want to step in and and off and and see if there are any good questions that um, that should be asked that have been in the chat to this point? No. Okay. So let me go for. Um, so pay attention. If you got your hand up, I... um, hi, Professor. Um, so my question is actually a little bit about the 2010 U.S. Census and also the one that was uh, for this year, 2020. And I see a common theme uh, with the Asian identity going on here. And obviously, I'm from India, so I identify as South Asian, Indian from there. But looking at the census, I see that they've separated Asian Indians from other Asians 
such that Pakistanis and Indians would be a different racial identity, even though that country was not separated until 70 years ago. So I don't quite understand the objective of making these distinctions where it is obviously, you know, it, it, it doesn't go along with the general understanding of how it has been done for the, and you know, like in the 1910, it's Hindu as a as a as a race and hindu is a is a religion so i'm right. i'm quite confused as to how they came up with these distinctions well i mean i i look in part because um this is the version of of racial dictatorship right that uh, the us is going to impose these categories based on the sort of necessity of who's immigrating who's getting into the country who's immigrating who's here and once a certain number of those people end up here now we need to count them now we need to figure out how many of them there are. And it is quite clear that like th these are, you know, I, I, that the, the sophistication of the local understandings of race are quite quickly obliterated by uh, the racial categories and race boxes that one is expected to, to check yourself under. So what I would say to you is, is in, rather than sort of defend the obviously indefensible uh, versions of the categories asserted in the census, is to say that what you're experiencing in, in terms of your identity is a similar to one uh, to which Hispanic uh, people are, you know, or Latinos in the census are also experiencing, right? Is that this really only works for people who are easily and specifically slotted within one of the well-established racial categories, namely black, white, Native American or Native Alaskan. Like those, now, the other thing to say is that starting in 2000, the United States Census allowed you to start to check more than one box. And while you may think that, that large numbers of people would do that, what you have as of 2019 is that those who identify as more than two, two races or more is only 2.8% of the population, but it is the fastest growing racial category in the United States. So is it, does it make sense? No. Why is it made in the way that it does? That's a question that I think uh, Professor Omi will be able to answer for you in a far greater sense. But this is, I think, the, you know, it's the discomfort that you may feel in this process, and it sounds like you do, is an outgrowth of American racial dictatorship. So let me move on to um, uh, Mariana Salgado. Yeah. Hi. My um, question's for Professor Jayaraman. I read an article last year in the New York Times um, during wildfire season about how wealthy Californians were hiring private fire teams and uh, private fire equipment to help during wildfire season. And I was wondering if you knew more about that and could sort of speak to it um, in relation to what we were talking about today. I've definitely read about it like you, but I don't know much more than what I've read. Um, I do know that... Uh, in some states, like I know in North Carolina, for example, um, private citizens can contract or private corporations can contract out incarcerated people to do these kinds of things in the same way that the government has them going out and fighting wildfires. I do know in other states, you can similarly contract incarcerated people through the state uh, to do your private work. Um, I don't know that that's true in California, and I don't know the particulars of what's happening with these wealthy white people. I don't know, Professor Cohen, if you do. Um, 
I, I don't either. I mean, I, I would say that, that on the one hand, this is a distinctive feature of neoliberalism, which is something we, I think we come to next week, in which public services are readily privatized for profit-making purposes. Like the fire department should not be a, be a for-profit venture, uh, but under neoliberalism, it becomes one. And I blame the Kardashians. That's where I heard of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's uh, <laughs> let me go move to, uh, so uh, Paige. Hi, on the topic of incarcerated peoples being used essentially as slave labor, is this a global issue or is this purely a U.S. issue? It's a uniquely U.S. issue. It definitely happens in other countries, but it's a uniquely U.S. issue because of our constitution and the exception to slavery in the case of incarceration. So it does happen elsewhere for sure. Um, But I think part of the reason why it's in my opinion, so particularly egregious in the United States is that we, we make a lot of claims that other countries don't make about the nature of our democracy, uh, fairness, you know, having a minimum wage, a federal minimum wage. Um, and our estimate is that a, close to a tenth of the American working population isn't actually paid the minimum wage and can be paid less than minimum wage legally. And so that's the you know, it's not that other countries don't do this. It's that there's a particular hypocrisy about the United States claiming that we have a federal minimum wage, uh, that we don't have slavery, and yet it persists. Um, yeah, I think that the, the, there's, there's much to be said about the 13th Amendment and that the clause there. Now, I mean, the clause about exceptions for... Um, uh, I, I, the, the, the clause for exceptions for hard labor was not written as a, a loophole. I think it is, in retrospect, been seen as such. Um, but it was written basically with the understanding that in, in what the penitentiary system looked like uh, in that time was that, of course, it, you know, imprisoned people would be expected to labor. Right. The language of that comes directly out of the Northwest Ordinance. It's not some kind of conspiracy loophole that would allow for uh, the perpetuation of slavery. It was simply the, the, the ways in which um, the punitive and carceral societies were organized at that time. We've since, you know, our, uh, the, our understanding of, of um, carcerality has shifted over the years to where it's, it's much more punitive now than it was really is about labor. But it does not change the fact that particularly in the like parchment in places like Texas and elsewhere, uh, what went from being slave plantations just simply became prisons. They just transitioned directly. So there is a kind of, on the one hand, I, I will speak up on behalf of the 13th Amendment and kind of push back against, not Professor Jayaraman, but I, I do think that there's a kind of conspiratorial bent that can get read into this, that um, the 13th Amendment was not written so as to have this loophole that would allow for mass incarceration, but that is how it has been interpreted, that is how it has been used in subsequent uh, generations. But the continuity between slavery and mass incarceration is direct, absolutely direct, explicitly direct. So like those, that should most certainly uh, trouble us. Um, Let's see, uh, let me uh, ask Eric Cortez. Hi, um, I had a question particularly about um, race in regards to religion. I know someone already kind of brought it up, but I was just curious because I know earlier, uh, Professor Cohen, you mentioned, I know uh, Jewish people, and I was just wondering, how exactly that has come to be? Because uh, I, I know we talked about race as a social construct, and if you foresee that continuing in the future, because I know 
um, being Jewish is a religion. And I've kind of learned about how that's been classified as a race in the past, but I'm not too sure anymore. So I just wanted yeah, to hear no, your on that. That's a very good question, right? And I think it came up earlier in the question in which the U.S. census defines South Asian Indians as Hindus, right? The, the, the confusion. And today we have the, the similar problem with like Muslims don't appear on the census in any way. The Arabs are basically classified as white, which is a kind of predatory inclusion that includes them in whiteness, but obliterates their existence on the census. There's all sorts of problems in that respect. Now, to speak directly about the question of Jewish identity, and what I put up here is something I wanted to talk about in terms of racial science, which these are the Nuremberg laws from 1935 that determine who is in Nazi Germany, who is and who is not a Jew. Now, what's particularly important about this is the understanding that throughout, up until really the 20th century, Jewish identity was largely understood, at least within the confines of racial science and the anti-Semitic foundations of much of racial science, that Jewish people were identified as a race, as subordinately white. So when the majority of Jewish immigrants come to the United States in the late 19th and early 20th century, they are not white. Jews become white after World War II, in the revelations of the Holocaust, and when Jewish Americans get move out of, you know, um, the, 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 the ghettos of the Lower East Side and move to the suburbs, right? In which today, Jewish American identity is by and large understood not as a blood quantum identity, but as a kind of religious minority, as a kind of cultural or ethnic subgrouping. Now, anyone who would explicitly insist then that Jews are a race that they are a biologically distinct race, I will submit to you, is an anti-Semite and a racist. Indeed, I would submit anyone who would argue that biological race is real, if you're talking to someone who says biological race is real and that that is attached to a set of values that racial identity determines how beautiful you are, how smart you are, how capable of self-governing you are, how fast you can run, how high you can jump, how musically inspired you are. If, you, if someone believes in a biological reality of race, then you're talking to a racist, full stop. And I think what's happening in this present moment, right, is that the Nazis in particular, right, I came to identify very explicitly German identity as being shaped by what they, by German blood, right? Um, Rudolf Hess, Hitler's closest confidant, said at one point that Nazism is simply applied biology, right? Nazism is a racial project. It's not a political movement. It's a racial project to purify and improve and build up the Aryan race. And so what you see here is that if you've got four German grandparents, you're a Deutsche Bleutinger, you, you have German blood, right? Now, if you have one Jewish grandparent here, you're a Michling second class, which then means that you have, or will be fired from your job in the civil service. It means that you cannot marry a full-blooded German, and so on and so on. Now, if you have two Jewish grandparents, you're a Michling first grade. If you have three, then you're a Jew fourth, you're a Jew. And because of the blood quantum identities, this then descends down in terms of what rights and power and authority and the rate at which you are going to be dispossessed of your job, your wealth, uh, your security, and eventually your life. Because let's be clear, anytime people are talking about the biological reality of race, it ends in genocide. That's where this goes. The belief in the biological reality of race ends in genocide. That was the case in indigenous North America. That was the case in North American slavery. And it was absolutely the case in Nazi Germany. 
Now, this, I think, is an exceptionally dangerous understanding now, and it crosses, you know, multiple directions. I would also say um, that the state of Israel defines Jewish identity on a blood quantum type. So I myself have one Jewish grandparent, um, and I, so I could, you know, lay claim to Israeli citizenship and make my aliyah. Now, I'm not going to. Um, I did make a trip to the West Bank uh, two years ago uh, and was, you know, welcomed into the country and welcomed out because of my ostensibly Jewish American identity and was asked multiple times whether I was there to make my aliyah um, because of this blood quantum question. So these are dangerous ideas, right? Um, But Jewish American identity is quite complex. And I think in real time, in the Trump administration, we are seeing Jewish Americans lose their ethnic identity and return to lose their whiteness and return to a status of uh, a subordinate race. Um, I think we are out of time. It is noon. Um, I will uh, bid all of you farewell. Thank you for being here. Um, I will stick around if anybody wants to ask any more questions. I'll stick around for a few more minutes, but I'm going to end the recording. Uh, And thank you all. And we will see you uh, with Michael Omi on Wednesday.